One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Jen Gersten in Calgary. And I'm Cindy Garasino in Vancouver. How's your week been, Jen? It's been a bit of a busy week. I was supposed to say, I ordered takeout four days out of this week, which is a new personal record of shame. Good for you. And also, I'm 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 very sad to report the garden's not doing as well as I would have hoped. It's uh it's not as fruitful as I might have expected, considering the amount of effort and time that I've put into it. Is that the hail? The hail didn't help, but I mean, like, I got, like, three heads of cauliflower and then opened them up and they were filled with uh, worms. Factory farming might be in your future. Yeah, I, I'm starting to have much more appreciation for the uh, realities of the uh, uh, mass factory farm process. <laughs> oh, man. Today, we're actually going to be talking about privacy. There's a new, totally non-invasive federal app that collects information on the people you interact with. It's completely anonymous, it swears it's totally trustworthy, and the Liberal government want everyone to download and install it. Sandy, I have some questions. Do you? But this is internationally recognized as one of the best ways to contain the spread of COVID-19. I have questions too, but I've downloaded it. Have you? I don't want the government in my phone. I don't want the government in my phone. I don't like it. <laughs> you know what? I am so actually so creeped out and concerned about actual surveillance by the corporate state than by government. I think that as much concern as I have over corporate surveillance tools and all that, I think there's a profoundly different level of concern when you start giving surveillance tools to the uh, part of society that we grant the legitimate use of force and violence. So uh, I think that's a slightly different order of concern for me and why, why I'm a little bit more creeped out about it. But to unpack some of these privacy concerns and hopefully allay my irrational fears about uh, government intrusion around this new federal app, we're joined by Christopher Parsons, a research associate at the Citizen Lab. He's actually done the audit on this app to tell me whether or not it's a thing that I should be downloading. But first, we need to address a couple of things. Jen, what's interesting you besides the uh, COVID app? What are you looking at this week? And my sad, sad potatoes. Um, well, look, we are going to be on hiatus on the show for the next couple of weeks. So uh, we are probably not going to have an opportunity to talk much more about the CPC leadership race. The thing that's flagged for me of the CPC leadership race is that it looks like Aaron O'Toole's actually out fundraised uh, Peter McKay, especially in the last quarter. Uh, that's interesting to me because, to be blunt, uh, I don't trust a lot of polling of things like leadership races because a lot of that polling tends to be done of just the general electorate. And uh, it's very, very expensive to get specific polling of actual members who intend to vote. So you can have really, really wide discrepancies on there. I think 
Therefore, I pin a little bit more to who's actually managed to raise money, particularly when we're talking about small donations. I think that's probably more indicative of on the ground support. But, you know, these are ballot races and ballot races are always really weird and interesting. So we're going to see how it goes. Uh, The ballots need to be received by 5 p.m. August 21st. And then we'll see who the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada is going to be. Who will will disappoint us next, Sandy? (laughs) We will be disappointed. That's the one thing that we know. What's interesting me, and you know, at the risk of of, um, this being a little bit behind the news, is this uh, whole business of the Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the allegation that he had was threatening a hit squad on a Canadian resident, very much along the lines of the um, Khashoggi murder, and. I am pretty, pretty spooked by that. You know, that's a really interesting story. If you have a chance to check it out on the Globe's uh, website, I definitely would. It's quite fascinating, and it's definitely a spy thriller novel-esque. The Tiger Squad, which is the same squad that was sent out to kill Jamal Khashoggi a couple of years ago, was the same one that was sent here to Canada. Um, This is a line from the story that I absolutely thought was fascinating. To quote, uh, to cover themselves, the Tiger Squad entered through separate kiosks, so the separate customs kiosks, but aroused suspicion after claiming they did not know each other, the suit states. Agents with the Canada Border Ser- Services Agency denied all but one of them entry, a squad member traveling on a diplomatic passport, it says. Okay, so that's fascinating to me because, firstly, how competent could this squad have been that, like, they were so obvious that the border security had, like, are you sure you don't know those guys? Because it, it seems to us like you know those guys. Like what? Like like think about for a moment just just how like bad you would have had to have been at hiding your intentions to like not get, to get flagged in those ridiculous uh, airport screening lines. You know what I mean? And I think that's like the first actual example I've seen of people being turned away on a tourist passport coming into Canada. Right? Like that's that y- you could not have been subtle if 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 you aroused that much suspicion coming in. It's like it's like almost like a Pink Panther movie. I, that's kind of the way that I prefer to think how this went down. If you like this podcast, make sure you subscribe to Canada Land, our weekly media and current affairs show. My colleagues have been doing some incredible work, and you should be listening. Each Monday, host Jesse Brown and his team bring you the stories you need to hear about in Canada, whether they're headlining the news or not. Lately, they've been doing a great job breaking news on the Wii scandal. You can also listen to senior producer Kasia Mihailovich and contributor Grace Lisa Scott unpack Alberta's Bill 1, a new law that makes protesting virtually illegal. Candidland should be in your feed every single week with vital, fascinating stories. So please search for Candidland wherever you get this podcast and hit subscribe. Thank you. One of the key tools in the fight against COVID-19 is contact tracing. And if you're not familiar with this, this basically means that when you get sick with COVID, people from the government will ask you questions about who you've been in contact with, and they'll try and get in touch with those people to get them tested as well. This helps them to stop the spread of the disease, enforce quarantines, do all that good stuff. But there is a potentially a simpler method for going about this or making contact tra- tracing more applicable, and that's to use an app. So what is a contact tracing app? The way the government's chosen to go about it is they've created this really privacy forward app where you download it. um, It records anonymously all the other phones you've been in contact with. And if one of those contacts gets COVID, they can then choose to press a little button on their phone. So a little signal can be sent back to everybody you've been in contact with. Um, You can then choose whether or not you want to quarantine, self-isolate, get tested. Apparently, this is all very, very private. Apparently, it's all very, very well encrypted. And, you know, apparently also we should all be downloading it because, you know, if enough of us do it, it might actually help 
staunch the spread of this terrible disease. And one thing that I think Canadians should take some comfort in is the existence of the Privacy Act, which prevents government departments, federal government departments, from reaching across the borders to other departments and getting data that's held by them. And that's why, for instance, the police cannot just go to the CRA and grab um, financial data or private data from that department without some kind of warrant or without some kind of official government oversight. And, And I think that that's something that is not as well known as it probably should be. Now, if you've been following sort of apps around the world, you know that a lot of countries that have been very successful at stopping COVID have used apps. In Canada, the first app that was developed for this was actually developed here in Alberta. It was called the Alberta Trace Together. But that app was filled with all kinds of weird bugs and problems, one of which, for example, on iPhones, you have to constantly have the app on and your phone on in order for it to work. So uh, it was recently announced that Alberta, for example, is going to switch over to the federal app as well. And joining us today to talk about all of these issues is Christopher Parsons, Senior Research Associate at the Citizen Lab, Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Thanks for coming in, Christopher. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate uh, the invite. So, uh, Christopher, I have to be honest with you. Um, when I started to see all of these advertisements for the Alberta Trace app and then for the federal government Trace app for COVID, um, I got a little nervous because... I don't like the government in my business, and I don't like the government in my phone, and I don't like the government in my phone poking around about my health issues. Um, But I'm told by much more reliable people than myself that I should be a little less worried about this app, and uh, I was wondering if you could explain to me why. So with regards to the federal app, from a you know, the high, high level bullet point is it is incredibly privacy productive from a technical standpoint. So the way it operates is this. Uh, you would download the application for either your Android device or your Apple device um, through the respective app stores. When you install it, there is a, a pretty extensive walkthrough to explain exactly what is going to happen with your data. The most important thing to know is no data is sent anywhere unless you have first approved it to go somewhere. And so let me explain a little bit about what that means. Once you set up the application, um, you're going to have, obviously, the app on your phone. And in the background, what it's going to do is every five minutes, a new unique code is going to be generated. And it'll be transmitting that code to other devices that have the application installed that are within about two meters of you. And then if you happen to have been proximate to someone for 15 minutes, and if that person or you um, happen to be diagnosed as having COVID, you will have the option of uploading a one-time code to a government server. Once a day, uh, this app is going to be going to those servers and saying, hey, do you have a a randomized code to indicate that I've been near someone? And so by using a a bunch of fairly sophisticated cryptography that was developed both by Apple and Google, once that comes down to your phone, um, that that number will go through all of the numbers you've been exposed to and just check if there's been a match. So let's say there is a match. Then you're going to get advice that is from your respective provincial government about what to do next. So it doesn't it doesn't identify whom you are to anybody. So your name is, is not uploaded or downloaded or sent to anybody. It also doesn't indicate your location. So it doesn't say that, you know, Chris was exposed or Chris exposed someone else at Starbucks. It just said, I was exposed. Here's some information. And the goal of all of this is to ensure that 
both it's privacy protective, which is important, but it's also designed this way to ensure that bad actors can't use this for surveillance. So the Google Apple framework, of course, is starting to be deployed in Canada, but it's designed to be deployed all around the world. And so the last thing Google or Apple or, or anyone else wants, for that matter, is to develop uh, a surveillance application to fight COVID that could also be used to fight or, or more aptly uh, to act against human rights defenders or you know other things that we in the West think is very important and that some authoritarian governments obviously are less inclined to support. And so once you get a notification on your phone, you can then choose what to do. You can go and do one of the online um, tests. So do you have COVID based on that? You can go get uh, a test um, to see if you actually are diagnosed with it, but it's really up to the individual. So it's, it's about empowering the individual top to bottom. How do we know for certain that this app can't be misused or can't be hacked or that the government won't at some point try to use the data for their own ends? There's a few different pieces to that. So first, it is an open source application. Prior to it being deployed, it was assessed both by BlackBerry Security, which is a private company, as well as by the Canadian Cyber Centre, which is uh, the public-facing defensive side of the CSE. So we've had those two groups look at it. It's an open source application, so developers can look at it now. To date, they haven't found anything. Now, in addition to that, there's also the privacy commissioners of the respective jurisdictions that would be looking at it. So, so far, we've had reports out from the, the federal privacy commissioner, as well as the Ontario privacy commissioner. And they've also done uh, greater or lesser technical audits, in addition to sort of going through the policy reviews. Beyond that, there's going to be a review or or recommendations, rather, by an advisory council um, that's composed of external parties to government that was set up by the federal government to advise the government on when and if the application should be taken down. That includes, you know, people on it from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and, and other organizations. And then you have Health Canada that's going to be involved going and assessing the efficacy of the application. So will there be any vulnerabilities or any problems in the application? There will be bugs. Um, I think that there's already been a, a couple bug updates that have happened. But in terms of the actual security audit, the likelihood that it can be compromised, we've got a lot of people looking at it. And were there some uh, conspiracy <laughs> to try and use this for tracking? It's a lot of different government shops involved. And I have an incredibly hard time ever imagining government could keep a secret of this magnitude for more than an hour or two. A lot of the concerns that the public has about this form of data collection, the data collection that is being commercially done, it, it vastly, vastly outweighs it. There's just far, far more data that is being collected, both commercially and without the knowledge of users. So in terms of location tracking, it's it's really a night and day difference. You know, if you look at the COVID alert app versus, uh, you know, there was a recent story that came out of the Tim Hortons app and the, the sheer volume of information that it was collecting. And there is a lot of data that's being collected by commercial data brokers. And in many ways, that actually makes the COVID alert app somewhat unique in the app ecosystem and just how little data is being collected. And part of that, of course, is it's a public health effort and they want to collect as little data as possible to encourage and increase public trust. And, you know, there's no actual need to collect a whole bunch of data that would then be sold off to advertisers. Because of course, in this case, 
There's no advertisers. And so you don't have to collect that data to monetize the app. When you describe some of the privacy forward elements of this application, I almost wonder if it's so privacy forward that it can't possibly be effective um, because it relies so much on the goodwill of an individual, you know, reporting their COVID status in order to uh, uh, have that alert go off. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the trade-offs in the way that the Canadian application has been developed um, using the Google Apple framework. There are good reasons for this um, based on, you know, public health research that's come out. We know that quite often we really do need to have the public volunteer to participate in public health measures. We don't have enough anyone in government to, to force a whole population to do something. And we know that this is an easy thing to volunteer with. Now, one of the broader concerns when you uh, go further abroad to France and other jurisdictions is there are differences in how exactly uh, these applications can work. So in the Canadian context, it's not a contact tracing app. It's an exposure notification application. And the hope is that by telling people that, hey, you may have been exposed, we will, we will encourage people to go and you know, get tested and do the diagnoses. But it doesn't show you where you've been. And that kind of information is very helpful for contact tracing. So if you look at France or, or some other jurisdictions, they had tried to build in contact tracing along with the exposure notification. And that does have a, a far broader set of concerns around privacy and civil liberties. And so the Canadian approach is probably you know, best described as a, a de minimis approach with the hopes that contact tracing and other techniques can be used to, to supplement the public health responses. So Christopher, I mean, the other question I have is there has to be a, a minimum number of people who sign up for this app for it to be effective in any meaningful macro way, right? Now, I don't understand math, but like how many people actually have to download or is it a certain percentage of the population that has to download this for it to work? It's a really good question about how many people need to be involved in these applications for them to work uh, in the, in either at all or in the best possible way. So research out of the United Kingdom has indicated that to be fully effective in the UK, so that's 100% effectiveness of the application, you would need at least around 56% of the population, which functionally means you need up to 80% of the population that has a smartphone to install it. So that's a lot of people in the UK. Now, as you have fewer people that have installed it, uh, you have some efficacy, but you, you lose quite a bit. So currently, one of the, the unfortunate pieces of the, the Canadian application is we don't actually have models for how Health Canada or, or any of the provincial counterparts that are envisioning using these applications, what exactly uh, they think the app will do. And it's an open question. When we look around the world, we, we see that the, the uptake tends not to be particularly substantive, to be honest. And so we don't know how useful the application will be. So whether this uh, COVID alert app is, is genuinely helpful in stopping the spread of COVID is an open question. And, and based on what we've seen abroad, uh, the, the response is probably somewhere along the lines of a bit helpful sometimes, but not always. And I think that that kind of goes to my opening question here. I mean, how many people just aren't going to download this app because they're just suspicious about um, the data that's being collected and how it's being used? That's a great question. And, and I look forward to seeing the social science research, as I'm sure you do, to see what that is going to be like. Hopefully, people will use the application um, if they want. Uh, there, there isn't a substantive technical privacy issue associated. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. With it, I do think that there are equity issues linked with it, but those are different from the concerns the government's going to use this data to spy on individuals. What concerns do you have from an equity point of view? Yeah, so I think there's a, a series of them that raise uh, concerns. So to begin with, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, in the UK, you have to have a pretty substantive proportion of smartphone users to install the UK app for it to be fully effective. Um, and so that equals, you know, around 80% of the population of smartphone users using it. In the Canadian case, we, we know based on a, a recent report out of Ryerson from June 2020, that 26% of uh, households or individuals who are earning less than $20,000 don't have smartphones. And the number's around the same for people who are over 60. So add on to that, that we know that um, Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color also tend to be less affluent. So we know that the application isn't going to pervade across society in an equitable way. So not everyone has the same access to resources to purchase contemporary smartphones. And so one of the questions is who exactly is the app being built for? Now, it may be that the government has a model somewhere that says, well, actually, we've accounted for this disparity. But unfortunately, that hasn't been presented to the public yet. So there's a baseline equity issue of who can install the application. There's also attached to... um, the, the challenges that Black and Indigenous persons of color in Canada have, the possibility that exposure checks could be something that become more of reality in Canada. So this would be a situation where, similar to the way that carding disproportionately targets Black individuals in, in, in Toronto in particular, we could see a situation where law enforcement officers go up and say, hey, I want to see your exposure status. When an individual then unlocks their phone, the possibility of a phishing expedition in their phone. And, and again, we know from uh, research such as out of our, our, vari- our various law societies that these kinds of illegal searches happen today with carding. So it's uh, not a step to expect that we see similar sorts of issues around uh, exposure checks. There are also concerns of will individuals be required to show their, their exposure status before they can go to work, before they can go into a grocery store, before they can go onto transit, before they go into a park, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you have individuals who, again, may be at a higher likelihood of being exposed because they are essential workers um, who, who often are less affluent members of society, they're going to be detrimentally affected or could be detrimentally affected by having to present their status, if you will. And then more broadly, there's how this kind of information be shared or used. Mm -hmm. So if you do present information to your employer and it indicates that you haven't been exposed, okay, you get to come in. If you show that, hey, I have been exposed, well, what's the role of the employer there? Is the employer then permitted to contact public health on your behalf? If you're trying to get into the workplace, can they call the police to pull you away because of an exposure check? These are the sorts of questions that frankly, haven't been raised or addressed meaningfully in a public policy sense from our governments. And that's pretty disappointing given that it's taken you know months to build this app and the public policy ideally would not follow the app, but would precede it. 
Well, it's, and that's a really interesting th- problem because you kind of have a double-edged sword here where, for example, if I look at what's made mask wearing more normal and effective is that, you know, you had um, civil society companies, organizations start to say, no, you can't come into the, this building if you don't wear a mask. So there has to be a bit of um, a, of a stick approach when it comes to uh, getting people to buy into some of these measures. I could see, for example, like if you had, hey, you know, you, you, you have to demonstrate that you haven't been exposed in order to come into the store. And, you know, here's your little note on your, 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 your iPhone showing that you haven't been exposed. If you were to actually start requiring that, you would have a much, much greater use of this app than if you didn't. So it winds up being a double-edged sword, as, 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 I'm, as I'm saying. The, 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 the more you're willing to sacrifice some of your privacy and some of your control over this app, the more effective it actually is likely to be. I mean, it may. We, that That's a, a point that we, we don't know. Again, we need data to, to assess that for certain. But we do know that you know the federal government, the Ontario government, and, and the privacy commissioners uh, at both those respective levels of government has said that these applications are voluntary. They're not to be mandatory. Um, the, the prime minister has come out and, and iterated similar messaging. So this application is designed to be voluntary. And one of the concerns that, that I've raised previously in, in writing that preceded this application by several months is that voluntary may, may become actually required. There's also, you'll have individuals who have to get food. They have to go to work. They're not affluent enough to, to sit at home and, and work from home, or they don't have resources to, you know, they've gotten a COVID notice, so they have to get tested, so they're going to lose a day's worker multiple days work, depending on how long it takes to get a test and test results back. So they will be motivated, not because they're bad people, but because you know they have to put food on the table, they have to pay their rent to find ways of cheating the apps. And they will, right? And it's one of the reasons why it's so important this is voluntary, because as soon as we make this compulsory, then A, some people will, will have to find ways to get around it. And B, you're going to have individuals that, you know, if they have a second phone, then they'll use that. Or what do you do with those individuals that, that I mentioned up front who don't have phones? So as soon as we say, well, this is going to be a functionally compulsory thing, then the government definitely has to find a way of providing some measure for these individuals to, to use the application if we're going to make it compulsory, which again would be a huge shift in public policy. And I, I really don't think would be effective, to be honest. Will there be public data released about how many people have downloaded the app overall so that we can get a feel for how effective it actually is? So the government of Canada, through um, different ministers, have been talking about this. And I, I believe that Dr. Tam has as well. So I think the last time I saw there was something like 1.15 million Canadians um, who had downloaded it. Now, we don't know how many of those are Ontarians versus how much are across the country. So it's a little hard to figure out um, how many people can like use the, the wholeness of the app at the moment. So the government, in theory, should continue trumpeting those numbers, I would hope. And two, at least in the uh, Google Play Store, you can go and you can see in sort of these large bands, the numbers of individuals who have downloaded the application. And is there anything else that you're concerned about with the app? Or are there anything else that, that, that you flagged when you started to look at this? There's a few concerns. Um, they, admit, they admittedly relate as much just to the policy around the app as, as the app itself. So to begin with, I, I think it's frankly disappointing that neither Health Canada nor their provincial equivalents have started to say, here's how we're going to judge success. Here's how we are going to understand effectiveness as it pertains to the application. Now, the Office of the Prize Commissioner of Canada, along with Health Canada, are going to be doing that kind of an assessment uh, in the fourth quarter of this year. 
but it's a little disappointing that we don't know what the metrics are. And, and going to uh, the earlier question, how many people have downloaded the app? The, the follow-on question might be, and is that enough? And we don't know what the numbers the government has actually are. So it may be that they had a, you know, an internal document in the first week and a half. If we get a million people to download it, hooray, we're, we're hitting our numbers. That would be helpful to know. Maybe they're hoping for 10,000 people, in which case they blew it out of the water. Or maybe they're hoping for 50 million people, in which case there's a huge failure and, and a policy problem. So the lack of policy around the efficacy is a substantive issue. And you know, going back to those equity issues that I mentioned earlier, these aren't secrets. These were not you know, hidden away in some academic tickle trunk somewhere. This was discussed popularly by civil liberties association, by academics, by some lawyers. And why don't we have anything from the government saying, okay, there is an equity issue, and here's how we're going to move towards addressing it. I mean, Canada, like, like the United States, um, has seen a, a real push for inclusive policymaking. The country, I think, as a whole has been better sensitized to the issues that Black, Indigenous, persons of color, the challenges they face in Canada. And these are exactly the groups that are going to be less able to use the application. So equity doesn't necessarily mean that everyone gets a smartphone. I mean, it could, but it doesn't have to. A series of policy options that are designed to make equitable options available could have been developed. It shouldn't really be up to um, citizens to say, okay, here's how the policy options to make this a more equitable solution. Here's what they should be. The government should have been doing that work, and it should have been introduced along with the app. And the fact that it wasn't is, is just disappointing. Um, we're not one month, two months, three months into this pandemic. And I realize that it's very difficult for the government to deal with the cacophony of problems that are coming on a daily basis, but that doesn't mean that they, they get a pass. So I have actually installed the application. So um, I would just note that, that you know, <laughs> it's not just an academic debate. Uh, I think it, you know, obviously has real world policy implications, but I have installed the application. So I, I've looked it over, I've written about it. I myself am fairly comfortable with it. Um, I think that the, uh, all of the security reviews, all of the accountability systems, both internal and external to government that have been set up, the various external parliament bodies, so the privacy commissioners who are looking at it, I, I really think that if you were building any sort of technical tool in government, I, I am hard pressed to imagine how you could build this in a better way. So Jen, you've listened to Christopher Parsons and and heard him out. What do you think now? Will you be downloading the app? You know, if it were just a decision to make with my head, the answer is probably yes. But my gut still doesn't feel totally comfortable with it, and I can't entirely articulate why. I probably wouldn't download the app unless I saw a critical mass of my peers downloading it. So Mm -hmm. I would be one of the late adopters for the, the download, I think. I've actually been thinking about vaccines while he was talking, um, and I was yeah. thinking about what populations will be reluctant to download this app. Um, I've downloaded it. I'm happy to keep it downloaded. Uh, as I've said before, I'm always far more concerned about the corporate surveillance state than than government, which has, has controls. Um, so I'm going to keep this app. But I do wonder, especially as we watch COVID um, continuing to be so politicized uh, and in in the media, largely south of the border, but that that leaks over here. Um, as to will we be getting a good population pickup, and how important is that population pickup to the effectiveness of the app? Yeah, absolutely. 
Mailbag. And now it's time to open up the mailbag. Today's question comes from, I don't know how to say this, W 3 on Twitter. Will the left ever unite? Will right-wing extremist parties help split the conservative vote? It's interesting of the, the, the tonal bias in there. Will the left ever unite? Will the extremist parties help, help split the conservative vote? I have a, a sinking suspicion that Ita Bathory is not, is not on the right wing of the conservative spectrum. I don't know, just a, just a feeling I get. Yeah, I, I, I think that. <laughs> I think that too. I think you're right, Jen. But what is, what's your take on that, Jen? Well, I, I think one of these questions is for you and one of these questions is for me. So why don't you take the first one? The left, uh, I don't think the left will unite. Uh, and, and by the left, I, I, I take it that the, that the questioner is asking, will the left and the center left ever unite? When will the communist parties get a chance, Sandy? <laughs> when will the commie parties get a chance? <laughs> The tankies want to know. I don't think I don't I don't see I don't see that I don't see that in the cards. If it didn't happen during the um, election to the, the 2015 election to unseat Stephen Harper, I don't I don't see it happening. This is such a um, a, a perennial question. Anytime the conservatives are in power, um, so many people on the center left and the left are pressuring the NDP and the Liberals. Uh, to come together. And then when the Liberals are in power, that pressure seems to dissolve. So I think a lot of the pressure tends to be amongst Liberal supporters who who want the NDP to help them when they're not in power and don't care about them when, when they are. And the NDP is very, uh, I would say, ideologically Puritan in the sense that they don't do a lot of the kind of leveraging that, and I'm talking about this on the national scene, they don't do a lot of leveraging in a way to to influence politics. They seem to, this is just my impression, they seem to see themselves as really, in a sense, the conscience of Canada, and consciences by their nature don't, don't um, play. They don't play. The, the only other observation that I would make to people who would like to see the, the left unite is that I think in the medium medium and the long term, it would be folly to assume that a merger with the liberals, between the liberals and the NDP would necessarily mean that a left wing party would lead Canada indefinitely. Yeah, yeah, that I think yeah, is a real the, mistake. Uh, that's the other part. Because I think that what, what, you, what you would probably see in the longer term is that as that left wing party scooted further and further over to the left in order to maintain its coalition, you would wind up alienating a lot of people in the center. But Jen. All right. So will the right wing extremist parties help split the conservative vote? And I'm going to use 2019 as a reference. Um, if Maxime Bernier was unable to get any real traction with the People's Party of... I already forgot what the name of that party is. I mean, look, it, it managed to get what? People's something something party? Like, I think they got less than 3% of the vote, which would tell me that there is just not a lot of appetite. There's just not a huge electoral um, gain in going for that far right section of the electorate. There just aren't enough people there to really make a big difference. Um, and you, I think, especially if you're the Conservative Party, you risk alienating more centrist voters than you could possibly gain um, in from that pool. So strategically, I think it's a bad it's a bad move to court them. And I just don't think there's enough of them to split the Conservative vote in any meaningful way. I mean, we, we see that's actually the real threat to the Conservative vote is uh, the viability of the NDP. 
And and this is actually in a way what the questioner is getting to, isn't it? Is is that that three-way dynamic, the three-way chess game that always goes on in Canadian politics, which is markedly different from the United States. But I also think it's very interesting that in Canada, the Christian right does not have leverage. It keeps trying to get the kind of leverage that it clearly has in the U.S. Yeah, I, I think that they're, they're a significant part of the conservative tent, and I wouldn't underestimate them. I think that they're probably smaller than a lot of people on the left realize. I mean, they're, they're, they're the Christian right. I mean, that's, that's a big, that's a big terminology. What do we mean when we're talking about the Christian right? Are we talking, you know, Mormons? Are we talking, you know what I mean? Like, what, what, what are we talking about specifically? Social conservatives is usually what we're discussing. I think that that movement is a much more subtle force within conservative politics. Uh, if we look, for example, in Leslie Lewis, she's really courted this conservative vote. And as a result, she might be able to play kingmaker in the uh, conservative leadership. Like, it's not enough of a base to actually get her into the leadership seat herself. But if she backs O'Toole, then a part of O'Toole's coalition will rely upon that that uh, social conservative base. I mean, we saw the same thing happen with the election of Doug Ford with uh, Tanya Granick Allen, for example, right? It, you know, it, in and of itself, it's, it's like 10% of the base, but that 10% can push you over the hump on a tight race. So, you know, it's, 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 I don't see that leading to a split in the conservative vote, because I think that the social conservatives are, again, right-wing extremists and social conservatives aren't the same group. So, I mean, we're talking about two different potential things. I think social conservatives tend to be much, much more organized. They tend to have much more money behind them. Um, and they t- tend to be a much more cohesive unit within the conservative party, and they can play a much more effective role within organized politics. Right-wing extremist parties, we've yet to see really an organized movement around a lot of the right-wing extremist parties. And I, I just, I can't see that happening in the foreseeable future. Future, but, you know, maybe. If you have a question that you want us to answer on the show, you can tweet it at us at OppoCast or send us an email at oppo at canadalandshow.com. Well, that's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back again in... No, we won't be back again in two weeks because we're taking a break. See you in September, everybody. See you in September. And by then, we'll have lots to talk about, including the new, uh, the new conservative leader. Yes. The coming American disaster, the coming American election. Yes, yes, yes. How bad is COVID going to be? How bad is it getting? Oh, we're going to have so much to talk about when we come back. It's going to be so exciting. We're going to know so much more in September that we wish we didn't. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at canadalandshow.com or on Twitter at oppocast. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb and David Crosby. Our managing editor is... Andrea Schmidt, theme music by Nathan Burley. And I also understand that this is going to be David Crosby's last show with us. I'm very sad. For many years, David Crosby's been our producer. He's been behind the scenes making this show actually happen. And we really appreciate uh, all the work that he's done for us. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. We can use this as a cue to support journalism and to support Canada Land. Yeah, trust me, you wouldn't want to have the show if it was just me. No. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.